Let's get into our sermon this morning from Luke 13, 22 through 30, and we're talking about entering through the narrow door. So uh, read with me or hear as we read the Word of God. Luke 13, 22. And he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where, you're, where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from the north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some who are last will be first, and some are first who will be last. Father, now we pray for the unction of the Holy Spirit that you would illuminate this passage before us this morning that our hearts may truly understand what it means that the way is narrow. Lord, we thank you now. Convict us and convince us of the word and bless us to leave differently than we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1994, two hikers in the south of France accidentally discovered a cave um, which contains some of the best preserved figurative cave paintings in the world, as, other, as well as other evidence of upper Paleolithic life. The cave drawings are purportedly as old as 35,000 years, making them the oldest human drawings ever discovered. Hundreds of animal paintings have been cataloged depicting at least 13 different species, including some rarely or never found in other Ice Age paintings. The walls are covered with drawings of early prehistoric horses and deer and short-faced cave bears and lions that are now extinct and mammoths and woolly rhinoceroses. Didn't even know there was such a thing. Also now extinct from the last ice age. And it's truly a cave of forgotten wonders. In in fact, there is a documentary from 2010 by the Austrian documentarian filmmaker Werner Herzog who did a a piece on this, and you can watch it. It's called The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. But the only way into the area where the drawings are is to crawl through a tiny opening in the back of the initial cave entrance. In other words, one could enter, go back one slide, one could enter this initial opening and not see any of those cave drawings that are tens of thousands of years old, if you didn't notice that there was a small little opening at the back of the initial entrance with a bigger and larger room with multiple drawings, multiple uh, works of art on the wall. 
an opening in the back of the initial entrance that seems at first glance insignificant. And if you didn't notice that, that small opening and squeeze through it, you'd never behold those ancient wonders. And who knows how many would-be explorers over countless millennia entered the initial cave without pressing through the small opening in the back, never actually discovering or knowing what treasures awaited them just beyond sight. Well, salvation is a narrow way also. Jesus calls entrance into eternal life the narrow door, a door that many will not be able to enter through, a door that not only one must strive to enter with much agony, but a door that will not always be open, a door that will one day shut close. And this is a truth that is often glossed over in our evangelical subculture, and that truth is entrance into God's kingdom is narrow. It's a small door. And that raises all kinds of questions for us when we think about how broad and wide is the love of God. We all want to know that, right? How big is the love of God? Does God love everyone? Is everyone automatically admitted into the kingdom of God? How broad, how wide is the kingdom of God? How narrow is the kingdom of God? And the questions we often want to ask is, and should ask is, am I going to gain entrance into the kingdom? Now, the occasion for this statement that Jesus makes here was a question that came on a day when he was traveling through the towns and villages on his way to Jerusalem, and someone, an unnamed person from the crowd around him, says in verse 23, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now the Lord recognized this for what it is. This question, which seems like a legitimate question, actually is born out of sort of a a smug religious arrogance, and Jesus recognizes this for what it is. Jesus was familiar with the writings of his day, and between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, there are all kinds of books being written. We shouldn't think that that 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, nobody was writing. In fact, many people were writing books, and there was a lot of literature out there, a lot of Jewish wisdom literature, a lot of theological literature, a lot of apocalyptic literature. There are all kind of writings And a lot of this writing informed the attitudes of the people that Jesus encountered as he traveled from village to village. Some of those books are the Targum, the the Book of First Enoch, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've probably heard of that. And a lot of these books supported this conclusion of many Jews in Jesus' day that envisioned the boundaries of the kingdom drawn so tightly so as to not only exclude Gentiles, and if you don't know what a Gentile is, a Gentile is any non-Jew, but also blemished bad Jews or bad Hebrews. So the idea that in the popular imagination of people in Jesus' day, particularly Jews, were that the number of people who were going to be saved was very small, and it was just the Jews only. And not all of them, because there were some bad Hebrews. You could think of some bad characters in the Old Testament, like Ahab and different people like that. And the question 
are only a few people going to be saved. It was born, as I said before, out of this smug complacency who thought that they would effortlessly be granted entrance through the pearly gates, so to speak, on account of their ethnic heritage to the exclusion of outsiders. Do you see kind of the the philosophical landscape Jesus is dealing with? And Jesus responds and says, no, you must, in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, and what he's saying is many of you Jews, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. So what Jesus does is he doesn't affirm that few will be saved. He, he affirms something the opposite, which is many will be lost. And the many that will be lost were the people who thought they were part of the few. One theologian commented and said, this was like a slap across the faces of their religious complacency, and it stung. No doubt it must have caused an uneasiness among the crowd, because the point was, not a few, but many of you who seek to enter the kingdom of God, who think you have automatic entrance and are granted automatic access, will actually not be able. Now, it was a statement with profound and timeless resonance for self-righteous people. So in context, Jesus is talking to ethnic Jews who think that they'll be granted to the kingdom simply by being Jewish, but it has this timeless profundity, if you will, for all of us who are self-righteous and would presume, would make presumptions about our privilege or access with God. Now the word used here in verse 24 Strive, right? Jesus says strive to enter. It comes from the Greek word agon. It's where we get the word agonize. And you could translate as to fight or to struggle or make every effort. And so you could say, you could translate it. One translation would be, Jesus is saying, so strive and make every effort to enter through the narrow door. It doesn't mean we're saved by our works or our efforts, but that, Discipleship comes with many difficult challenges. Discipleship comes with many difficult challenges. Now, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you can recognize that there are challenges to your faith. Some of them are those hard questions that you're dropping in the boxes on your way in or on the way out. Discipleship comes with difficult challenges. There are things that often make it hard for us to be disciples and followers of Jesus. There are things that that are impediments to our faith. There are things that rock us and shake us to the core. Things about our lives that we just assumed would go well and God had the very best plans for us and and, and God throws a, seems like life at least, throws us a curveball. Tragedies, disappointments, discouragement, hopes and dreams that are sometimes dashed on the rocks, you know? Crushed dreams. Discipleship comes with difficult challenges. Life isn't easy, and being a Christian does not automatically make life easier. I was just talking with someone this week who was disappointed about how life has turned out. This person was, is, is um, um, a little older than me and thought life would go completely different and didn't understand why they were in the position 
or the predicament they were in. And I made a comment. It was just an observation off the cuff. And I said, you know, Christians have to play by the rules too. We live in God's world, and we have to obey the rules of this world also. Being a Christian doesn't mean we walk on water, we walk through doors, all the rules somehow don't apply to us. We get to come and go freely as we please. We've got to play by the rules. And there are consequences if we break the rules also. Now, God's grace is so good and endures with us that he often prevents us from making bad decisions. He often prevents us from doing things where we suffer incredible consequences, but sometimes we do suffer consequences. Sometimes we make decisions and our life falls apart. Sometimes we can do things that we think we've been informed about and we suffer terrible consequences from. I was talking with my daughter this week as I was unpacking this text and this idea, and I, and I was actually talking with my sister. My daughter was in the car, and I said, um, you know, if you drink 23 beers and jump on the highway and wrap your car around a telephone pole and lose your legs, God will forgive you, but your legs won't grow back. There are consequences to our actions, and sometimes life throws at us its consequences. Discipleship comes with many difficult challenges. Now, the crowds who came to hear Jesus, they came from all of these different towns and villages, and there were relatively few who authentically followed him as disciples. So if, if in your mind's eye you can get a picture of Jesus walking through villages with being thronged by the, the crowds of people, but the actual people who were placing their faith in him and following him in the truest sense were very few. And because, because of this, Jesus had lots of bandwagon fans, if you can put it that way. You know, you true Cards fans, you like the Cards um, when they win and when they lose, right? Um, the bandwagon fans, they, when, when, the, when the team is winning, they come out of the woodwork, right? Uh, but when the team is losing, they melt away, you know? Um, they're nowhere to be found. In fact, I have so much respect for Brewers fans. Um, <laughs> what misery it must be. Uh, to be a Brewers fan. I know a couple. Um, they've only been to the World Series once, uh, and they lost to who? Who knows who they lost to? They lost to the Cardinals, yeah. What year? Yeah, 1982, that's right. Um, that's just a quick, fun little sports trivia in my sermon here for you sports fans. But Jesus cautions against the mindset so prevalent in his day by the Jews that they were saved not by grace, but by privilege. This idea that, and this is the heartbeat of Jesus. Jesus is trying to announce the gospel of grace. He is proclaiming this gospel of grace. And the idea is that no one is going to get in by privilege or some status that they have in and of themselves, which is what the Jews were guilty of. He cautions against this. They were God's chosen people, right? And you can kind of understand it. They were heirs to the promises and guardians of the law. They were custodians of the covenants of God, and yet all that privilege didn't profit them. And Paul touches on this point in Romans chapter 2. He says, now if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, 
An instructor to the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? See, you can have all the religious privilege in the world, and if it isn't applied to the heart, it doesn't profit you, and because of this, many are lost. Many will be lost because of this. You know, we too can have all of the trappings of religion. I say the trappings of religion, I'm thinking about the things that, that we think of when we think of religion visibly. The trappings of religion. We can have doctrine, we can understand complex ideas about God and come to church and spend time under the preaching of the word and the sacraments and not be profited in the end because our hearts are hard. We cannot profit. We can go through all this, you know, and still not profit because of the hardness of our hearts. God cares about the heart more than he cares about the external things. He cares about the heart. He wants our hearts to, to, to feel and think and be touched in the way his own heart is touched. We also need to realize that many who presume will be excluded. Many who presume will be excluded. Now, it's worth mentioning here that there's a difference between assurance of salvation and presumption of salvation. Because if I say uh, many who presume will be excluded, hopefully your mind, if it's thinking doctrinally, theologically, you're thinking, how is that different than the idea of assurance of salvation? Right? Hopefully, uh, if you've been here a while in this church, and even if you haven't, if you're a Christian, you have some semblance of confidence and assurance that you're saved and you're going to heaven, right? Now, sometimes that confidence wavers, but it's not a good thing to be in a place where every moment of the day, from day to day, we are so uncertain of God's love and the security we have. But that's different than presumption. Assurance is when you find confidence with God because of what he's done for you. And you take rest in that. That's, the, that's assurance of salvation. I have assurance of salvation because I become convinced by God's wooing and the work of the Holy Spirit and the word of God that God loves me. And because of what he's done, I can rest in that knowledge that I'm saved. But presumption is different. Presumption is an arrogant complacency that says, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Of course I'm fine. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Right? Well, how's your, how's your walk with the Lord? Oh, I'm fine. Everything's great. You know, how's, how's, your, how's your prayer life, and, and how's, you know, how's, your, how's your marriage, or how's, you know, any of those things, oh, fine, fine, fine. It places confidence in yourself. See, the crowds were presumptuous about their salvation, and they thought God owed it to them simply by reason of who they were. They were God's chosen people. In verse 25, Jesus says, when the master of the house has locked the door... It'll be too late. You'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll say, but we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And he'll reply again a second time. There's this emphatic declaration. I don't know who you are or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. They had Jesus in their presence. They listened to him teach. 
He walked among their streets and their villages. He taught among them. They shared table fellowship with Jesus. But they're going to be shocked at the end of the age, Jesus says, to find they're not admitted into the kingdom of God. Why? Because, well, he says, I never knew them. I never knew those people. He says, they'll come to the door and say, Lord, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. And Jesus will say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. Who you know or who you're known by makes all the difference in the world. Well, I've shared this story in the past about Maribel and I. We got together as teenagers growing up in L.A., and I was a punk kid. I was really a hoodlum as a, as a teenager. I dressed like a, like a hoodlum. I acted like one, and I was visiting Maribel's neck of the woods. We were just dating at the time. We were boyfriend and girlfriend. And um, like I said, I, I dressed like a thug at the time. This is the 1980s. And a car of guys rolled by. And they were shouting slogans out of the window. That's, the 80s was the height of Los Angeles' gang scene. And I was wrapped up and caught up in that whole thing. And, and three guys drove by, and they shouted some slogans. And I, and I shouted back, and I was all alone. And I turned to walk away, and I heard the brakes screeching. And I looked, and they had whipped a quick U-turn. And they were up on the corner in two, uh, two seconds on the curb, and three of them jumped out and were in my face in a nanosecond. And they were bigger than me, and I was outnumbered three to one. And they were you know, yelling and shouting at me, and it was, it was, I was just a, just a hair away from probably getting beat to a pulp. Who knows what would have happened? I had the gumption to ask them what gang they were from. And just a few months earlier, I had been locked up in a juvenile detention center with a guy from that gang who I became friends with. We would play cards, and we got to know each other. And uh, when I left, I gave him you know, my you know, my, my shampoo and my toiletries, because that's what you do when you're locked up as a kid. Um, and we were friends, and I knew him, and I knew him by name, and I said, oh, man, I said, I know your, your buddy, and I gave his name, and, they, and their entire demeanor changed <clears throat> because I knew one of their guys. And within a few moments, they were shaking my hand <laughs> uh, because I knew, one who, I knew one of their buddies, and if they would have called them up at that moment, they didn't have cell phones back then, but if they would have called him up at that moment, he would have confirmed, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's a good guy. I mentioned all that to say who we're known by, who we know, and who we're known by matters. We want to be known by God. The people who come to the door who think they're going to enter and won't be allowed to enter are those who God says, I never knew you. I don't know you. We know you. I don't know you. That's the response. Who you know matters. And so the question is not, have you accepted Jesus into your heart, but rather, does he know you? That's the more pertinent question for us to ask. Do you have a living relationship with him by faith in which you're assured of this mutual knowing? You know him and he knows you. Or will God say on that day, depart from me, you workers of evil, I never knew you. See, in the moment of salvation, knowing God matters. Not just knowing about God, because we're good at that. We're good at knowing about God. Unbelievers know about God. There's books written, there's, 
There's uh, whole departments of theology in secular universities that teach about God. You can get a degree in theology and be an atheist nowadays. You don't have to know God. You can know about God, and for a lot of people, that, that's sufficient. But that's not what God's concerned about. It's this relationship with him. It's a living, loving, faith-filled relationship where God has assured us of his knowing presence in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that happens over time as we worship him and love him and place our confidence and faith in him. Now, back to our context for a moment. I'm getting ready to wrap up here, but Jesus is pointing to the fact that God's program in history is not to keep the kingdom small, but to expand it by sharing the love of God for the life of the world. And in these final verses in verse 28, he tells the Jews, the crowd in front of him, you will weep when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrown out. Then people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. And of course, he's talking about the Gentiles. These people from the east and the west who will come and dine with him, who before were last, God will make first. And those people who were in first place, the people who presume, the people with all the religious privileges, will actually be last place because they did not understand the nature of faith and discipleship. Now, the caution for us is for us to keep on striving. It's not that we're saved by our works. We're not. We're saved by faith. But recognizing that the life of faith is filled with many difficulties, many challenges. Knowing God does not make life necessarily automatically easy. There are many things to persevere through, many things to strive through. To, to work through with all of our energy and might, and often, sometimes, to agonize through. In Christ, there are many wonders to behold that are not initially clear, not initially visible. And sometimes we may ask ourselves, why do we continue striving? Why do we continue week in and week out, pressing forward in faith when it seems as though not much changes. Or maybe we think, where's the payoff for all of this? Where's the reward for persevering in my faith? But just beyond the pale of what is initially visible, there is joy and mercy to behold, wonders to witness and to behold without measure. It's a narrow door for sure. A small opening in the cave, as it were that leads to eternal life, but behind it is waiting for us the love and eternal glory of God. Let's pray.